Kevin. Hey, Mike. Good morning to you, man. Back at it. Podcast number nine. We're almost to double digits. I'm glad you're keeping count. <laughs> Maybe I'll stop counting once we hit double digits until we get to like, you know, something really significant like a hundred. Okay. If I'm if I live that long. Oh come on. <laughs> oh Lord. Okay, so we wanted to talk of the uh, in, music is is uh, one of the things that music is different <laughs> than uh, most other professions or most other uh things you talk about is is that we have um audiences we have fans we have support tremendous support people uh, people love music and they follow their music and it doesn't matter i mean it could be bluegrass it could be you know rock and roll it could be uh country music has avid 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 fans obviously and and the jazz community is a has a avid support Um, yeah it it may or may not be unique it it certainly feels like it's a slightly unique level of support just because um it's not really commercial considered commercial music anymore it's certainly not up there competing with britney spears or um, whoever you know taylor swift Mm -hmm. (laughs) right but uh i mean one of the things that pulled me into to being a musician was this unbelievable warm and open committee uh community that like accepts you and pulls you in and nurtures you even when you're even when you're just starting out in a a remarkably non-competitive way you know i had done some classical music before which also has a beautiful community but it's competitive in a in a different way if there's a competition you're not going to be talking to the others just the number of competitions involved i guess and the the Competing for a job at the with the orchestra, those those auditions are famously, at least I've been told, famously pretty vicious. Um, and we don't really have auditions exactly in the jazz world. It's more of a community thing. That doesn't mean I'm not saying there's not a hierarchy of who plays and all that stuff. As silly as that is, but um, my experiences with this has been that jazz was way more than just a musician and an audience and less of a career and more of a, I don't know, a lifestyle in a certain way because you, you create these friendships with, with both fans, but also, I don't know, we call them super fans, these organizers who, who create musical support systems, uh, fan clubs, uh, but really a lot of them are just called jazz societies and there's there's so many of them that we have a society for the jazz societies that, that provides support for all the different jazz societies around the country and the United States and around the world. Um, yeah, I think part of that could be the fact that you, you were talking about it's not quite as commercial as some other forms of music and it it, so I think there's a sense in the community of people who love jazz that they have to contribute, they have to support it, they have to be to some degree active in that community to support it because it is not commercial. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorite stories in support of this is when I was 20, I won a scholarship from the Hilton Head Island Jazz Society which is no longer around. It's kind of changed into different things. They had a little alligator as their logo. 
And they had a competition, not a competition, like an audition for scholarships. You wrote a paper and you sent some recordings. And I won it. And um, in exchange for that, I agreed to, to bring my, a group in and perform for their meeting. They paid us. Um, and it was a big deal to us. I, I got my group of guys I was playing with all the time. Um, and we all got in our cars and, and drove from Jacksonville, Florida to Hilton Head. And back, back then there was no highway that went from Hilton Head Street to the interstate. You had to get off early on Highway 17 and drive through Bluffton, which at that time was one of the most famous speed traps. <laughs> and I, I didn't know this, but the, you know, Jerry Doring, the, the president of the association, had told, told me specifically, listen, here's the, this is before, like, you know, map, Quest and and whatever we call it now, Google, Google, Maps. Google Maps and Waze, you know, like they would have to give you the directions, you'd write it all down, you yeah, know, right. so they, she went over and over, when you drive through Bluffton, you have to drive the speed limit, because it's, it's a famous speed trap, and we were like, yes, we understand, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, and of course, <laughs> there are five cars, because we have all this equipment stuff, and we're, you know, that's just how we did it. Um, they pulled all five of us over, one after another. <laughs> two two police cars pulled all of us over, and I'm embarrassed. We were already just barely going to make it to sound check. Um, so I, uh, I ran to this device on the side of the road. It's called a payphone. <laughs> um, and pulled out a quarter and, and called ahead and told Jerry that, um, and that's a woman, Jerry, um, Jerry Doring. Uh, she was awesome told her that um, I'm so sorry I'm embarrassed uh, we're not going to make it on time for sound check I'm, I promise I'm going to make it on time for the concert she says you're in Bluffton aren't you <laughs> <laughs> I said yeah I didn't want to tell her because you know it was embarrassing she had warned us anyway we got there in time to play the concert we missed the sound check but we just did it right before we went on stage and we played the whole first set and then on the break they do this ceremony where they're going to give me the give me the scholarship. You know, they had a the little check made out, the large size. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out unknown to us while we were we while we were still driving up there, they got together with all the different people in the audience. There were over a hundred people there, and they collected all this money. And um, after they gave me the scholarship, they then gave us the money to pay for all our tickets. Which was we our jaws dropped because we were pretty bummed. We're like, man, we're not gonna make any money now. <laughs> you know, we were we were college kids trying to pay our bills and get through school and stuff, and uh, it it was just very charming and and endearing that they they cared enough to do that. Yeah. And my relationship with Hilton has continued all the way through. It's one of my favorite places. It's, it might be my favorite place just because of my connection to it. But what's interesting to me is that kind of community supporting for jazz is everywhere. Yeah. You know, that story reminds me of my favorite, one of my favorite places. Oh, this is what we're here for. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I spent several years uh, in New Orleans mm-hmm. playing and, uh, you know, playing clubs. I had a, uh, at one point a seven-piece jazz funk band there that we became pretty popular and played the played all the good clubs tipitinas etc what what were they called it's called metropolis oh a good name all right yeah which is close to the name i use in my novel the musician right about that band metropole who inspired uh much of that see how i set you up (laughs) thank you (laughs) (laughs) never miss a chance to promote but um 
at any rate, uh, a similar, similar story, and I guess I'd say on a grander scale, was Katrina virtually eradicated uh, the, oh, the, music hur- the hurricane. Scene. Yes, in 2005. It devastated the whole city, obviously. Huge parts of the city were just completely wiped out. And people, lots of people lost everything. My, my best friend there and he and his wife, they left town right before the storm and they went up into the state a little bit of ways to, to avoid the uh, hurricane. And when they got back, they, they didn't have anything. They had the clothes in the car that they left town with and that was it. You know, you know Mike, there's a local drummer here, David Potter. He plays great, great musician. He had just got married and decided to move to New Orleans. They had been there less than a week when Katrina hit, and they got so little noise, they left with their clothes and his drum cymbals. Yeah. And they lost everything. There's so many people have those kinds of stories. In fact, uh, you know, Irma Thomas, who is the soul queen of New Orleans, Mm -hmm. they call her the soul queen of New Orleans, and Irma is, you know, among the most famous ever uh, musicians. In, uh, uh, in and from New Orleans. She was actually out of town. She was in Austin, Texas right. on a gig uh, when it hit. And um, she said she saw the rooftop of her home in water on television watching that. Oh, wow. And her quote was, you always know where you live, she said. You know it. So she could see that her house had been... She and her husband lost their home and their club. They had a club called the Lion's Den. They lost that. But anyway, those stories go on and on and on. And But the people of New Orleans, the community of fans of the music, of the jazz in New Orleans, were uh, not about to let that... Um, destroy their their love mm-hmm. uh, their culture it is their culture and so the interestingly the first major project following hurricane katrina was building uh, 72 homes along a stretch of road uh, in the ninth and north i think it's the north part of the ninth mm-hmm. ward um that was it was mud. it was nothing but mud after Katrina. Wow! They built seventy-two homes there, only f- f- for musicians, and they call it's called the Musicians Village. Um, and oh, uh, I've heard of this. I have. And it's it was uh, the champions of it. Harry Connick Jr. was a champion of this. Bradford Bradford Marsalis was a tramp champion of this. When they started building, they, it was uh, managed, if you will, by Habitat for Humanity. Okay. They came in and built the houses. And, of course, you know that's uh, former President Jimmy Carter. That he, was, he has been, for most of his life, since he was president, that has been his, his yeah. major commitment is, is Habitat for Humanity. He was there, you know, hammer and nails. Barack Obama was there, hammer and nails. George Bush was there, hammer and nails. The mayor of New Orleans there, Ray Nagin. He and George Bush hammered some of the first nails in one of the first houses. Um, but this community, and there is now, there's a, a part of the centerpiece of the village is called the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music. And of course, Ellis is the father. Yeah. Brantford Patriarch, and yeah. And yeah, a great jazz pianist who 
just recently died about a year or so mm-hmm. ago. Anyway, well, he died from COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did. So it was, I guess, two. Boy, maybe two, three years ago. I mean, maybe that. Yeah, he's one of the track. early ones. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the the centerpiece of the village is the Alice Marsalis, Marsalis Center for Music. So it was like um, it was a defiant uh, stance that we're going to do something to save these, to keep these musicians here and keep their music alive and keep them from having to go. You know, a lot of people uh, that didn't have a lot of money went other places and never could afford to come back. Right. Because they couldn't afford to rebuild. A lot of them came to Atlanta. Yes, a lot of came to Atlanta. A lot of them went to Houston, um, other cities around there. And uh, like I say, a lot of people never were, were never able to come back. Uh, people who didn't have the wherewithal to, you know, build a new home. But so this is a, what a great example of the, the support of the jazz community uh, for their musicians. You know, Mike, the first time I played um, in Russia, in Moscow, we met this uh, piano player. That This would have been, oh, like 2005. Um, he gave um, the, the person I was touring with, Renee Marie, gave her a book. It's um, It was a history of jazz musicians during the Soviet Union. And, you, you know, jazz was illegal in the Soviet Union. The book had pictures of, of billboards on Red Square that said if, if you let them play saxophone, uh, they will become degenerate. I'm sure it sounds better in Russian. <laughs> and he just talked at length because he was old, old enough that he was alive during the Soviet Union. How if you were going to play jazz, um, you had to work with these secret societies that, that supported each other to play. And they would play, they loved jazz so much as a, as a representation, I guess, of individual freedom. But the idea that even a place where it was illegal, it had support. The same thing was true in Cuba. Um, the great drummer Ignacio Barroa, who literally came over on a raft in order to make sure his family wasn't persecuted and so that he could play jazz. Um, ended up playing with Dizzy Gillespie. He, he talks about like you know he would have jazz records, but he'd have to put them in in a in the in like a uh, sleeve for a different type of music, and that they would have a like a tiny room in a basement, completely soundproof, just so they could play to make sure that they weren't read on by each other. I mean, Looked like they had a whole collection of marching band albums or something. <laughs> yeah, some of them. I'm sure it was like, you know, whatever the people's approved music would yeah, be. Right. And, you know, I, I suppose this, I'm, I'm a jazz musician, so I know more about that, but there does seem to be something special here about this this type of music where it's where it's favored. Like, like, like in North America, let's say United States of North, where, what's one of the least likely places you think there'd be a thriving jazz club? Provo, Utah. Oh, there's got to be one there. <laughs> Just <laughs> me and my son went on vacation in in uh, Montana and Wyoming. Uh, I don't know, five six years ago, and we're in uh, Bozeman, right there on the main street, and there's a store called The Jazz Store, and all it sells is jazz posters, photographs, albums, books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, not far from Yellowstone is 
not where you would think of a jazz town. There must be a university there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite place is a place called Yardbird Suite. It's in Edmonton, Canada. A very, mm-hmm. I, I, it looks to me like it's a very blue collar. Lots of oil workers there because it's in the plains. And that club has been there for decades and decades. And it's run by volunteers. And they have like two Steinways and a big, beautiful wow. hall. And it's all funded through volunteer work. It's a, it's an interesting the place to play. You might play the Dakota, which is in Minneapolis, another great club, and drive north, across the border to Calgary, and all the way up to Edmonton, which is like, I feel like there's good. I would, me as being a dumb American, thought there'd be like more moose there than uh, <laughs> than jazz fans. But no, it, it's it, it's there's something about this community of it's beautiful and. You know, Mike, during the pandemic, that was really a, a shocking thing for musicians everywhere to suddenly realize how much of our life and our sense of family is connected to, number one, the people we get to play for. Mm-hmm. The music's not the same when you're playing for yourself, not because you want applause, but because of this mm-hmm. feeling of a connection. And it's not just someone clapping in the audience. It's like you see them over and over, mm-hmm. and it's it's you're aware of what they do for you and and you become aware of that what your music does for them. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, brings another idea to mind um, that uh, for several years I was on the road and uh, through a booking agency and playing um, uh, the, the, the best clubs in very small cities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, we didn't play Chicago or New York. We played uh, Minot, North Dakota and Waterloo, Iowa, and Logansport, Indiana, uh, and places like that. But interestingly, wherever we went, no matter, you know, you wouldn't think, again, towns like that, you wouldn't think would be big havens for uh, live music of any kind, or certainly not jazz, but wherever we went, we always found, came across some players in that town that were really, really good. So great music. I was that was one of the things that really surprised me about being on the road. Great musicians everywhere. There really are. <laughs> Just, the best of the best everywhere. Everywhere. Every little town has some guys that are and gals that are can really play. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So Mike, running with our theme here, what what's the lesson to be taken from this? Well, I guess the the lesson learned is that the jazz community is strong and enjoys tremendous support from their fans. I think it. I like that. I think like there, there's a bunch of books of like like how jazz can improve your life or how jazz can make you better at business or whatever. To me, it's the idea that you don't do this by yourself. You know, it's um, and jazz in particular. You know. It's not like you're talented and you practice in your garage and you get discovered and now you're a star. It's more about working with all these people. You just you don't you don't create music by yourself. You know, it's in support and all these mentors and jazz societies. I, I've been supported both by other famous musicians, not other than me, I mean a bunch of famous musicians who've helped me. And fans who come to hear me but also people who create these societies that support you know it's uh it's a remarkable thing and it's it gives you a lot of humility and a lot of things to appreciate and i try to tell students all the time 
you know, you need to participate. This is how you, this is how you get ahead, not by doing it yourself, by participating in the whole thing. You give as much as you get, and it, it really works great. And it's such, it's, it's an indication, it's a demonstration of proof of how essential uh, music is in people's lives. It's, I might finish off by going back to the New Orleans situation mm-hmm. and, and uh, this um, piece from the Journal of American History that was written uh, right after Katrina. And it was talking about how um, that, that, less, that, that less than 10% of the pre-Katrina population of musicians were still in New Orleans a year after Katrina. And the uh, the quote that ends this, or the sentence that ends this article, says that if the musicians do not come back, the culture will die. ¶¶ 